Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. If you've been watching the current season of this show, you might feel like the Appalachian Trail is a dangerous hunting ground for all sorts of killers. And this episode is not going to convince you otherwise, as it's the story of the AT's first murder. This is Monsters. In 1974, Margaret McFadden Harris was a 17-year-old woman with her whole life ahead of her. Like others her own age, she loved to hang out with her friends, play with her dog, and enjoy everything Summer had to offer. But unlike her peers, Margaret was a bit of a child prodigy when it came to academics. She finished high school in just three years and was enrolled to start college before she had even turned 17. Margaret's father was a physician and her mother was a clinical pathologist and they both had high hopes for their four children. They all showed great academic proficiency and it was expected that they would follow in their parents' footsteps with college degrees and professional careers. But despite Margaret's natural talents for academia, she always felt pulled in a different direction. When she wasn't reading, she loved to trawl her way through vintage stores for unusual clothing or herbal stores for spiced incense. These days, we might look back and think her alternative lifestyle was pretty typical of the 70s. Peace and free love and hippie imaginings all with a little weed on the side. But at the time, Margaret's choices were considered pretty out there and certainly not what was expected of a woman with her talents and upbringing. Outside of college and reading, Margaret had a part-time job waiting tables at an Italian restaurant in Five Points, a neighborhood in Columbia, South Carolina. She juggled her work with classes, and it wasn't long before she began to feel uninspired about both. Then, in March of 1974, Margaret was offered an even more alternative path, one that would change her life forever. Joel Eugene Polson was born on April 26, 1948, in Hartsville, South Carolina, which sits about 60 miles or 96 kilometers northeast of Columbia. He was the youngest of three children to his parents, John and Bonnie Polson. John started out as a paper mill worker and then became a successful jewelry maker while his wife stayed at home to raise the children. All of the Polson children were encouraged to make their own way in life. Where Margaret was encouraged to follow a typical path, Joel was raised to be an independent free thinker. 
As a child, he loved to go away to scout camps or play soldier with his siblings. He had plenty of friends and loved to ride his bike and climb trees. It was a rough-and-tumble childhood where kids were out until the sun went down and where the value of exploring was greater than being holed up inside with TV or video games. While that might sound idyllic or nostalgic to many, Joel was one of the many kids whose free-range childhood was spoiled by a seemingly innocuous accident. When Joel was 13 years old, he was playing outside with his brother when he slipped and fell. While his parents were out for the day, he had climbed up a tree onto the roof of the garage. He had done that same climb many times before, but on this occasion, he lost his footing and fell from the roof onto the concrete below. Initially, Joel seemed alright and he dusted himself off and kept playing. But when his parents returned from their outing, they noticed that he was confused and somewhat muddled in the way he spoke. They put it down to a harmless childhood tumble, and seeing as he was running back around with his brothers, they didn't think much of it. But later that night, he didn't seem to be getting better, and he was more confused than before. So the next day, they took him to be assessed by a doctor. That was the start of a long battle with the effects of a severe concussion. It took two years before Joel could go back to school, and even then, his entire personality had changed. Where he had once been bright and outgoing, he became almost childlike in his interactions. The other kids in his grade were two years younger than him, but even they found him odd, and he no longer had the ease of friendship that he had prior to his accident. Physically, he was clumsy and awkward, and on top of that, he chose to grow his hair long and wear cardigans and chinos. That all may sound perfectly normal for modern times, but back then, his appearance made him stand out even more. In high school, he struggled to talk to girls and he preferred spending time in the photography lab rather than hanging out with his peers in the schoolyard. He earned the nickname Flash because he was never seen without a camera. He was also in the drama club, the student government, he wrote for the school newspaper, and was a DJ on the high school radio station as well as working in the student store. He wasn't an excellent student, but he never caused any trouble, and he seemed quite content to just cruise by in life, drifting from one interest to the next. In the years after high school, Joel won various photography competitions and was a regular contributor to the local paper. One of his favorite things to photograph were flowers in their various states of bloom. It was his love of nature that drew Joel back into the outdoors, and he began telling his family about his desire to save the planet. He stopped driving and began road cycling, which soon turned into a passion for long-distance biking. In 1970, he rode his bike 570 miles, or 917 kilometers, from Hartsville, South Carolina to Kent in Ohio. Then he told his family he was going to ride the full width of the United States. Joel was determined to achieve his goal, but determination alone wasn't enough to overcome the intense pain of the hemorrhoids that developed as he cycled into Texas. Within a couple of days, he was on a Greyhound bus back home with his bike. Despite the setback, Joel didn't seem put off. Well, he did seem put off from cycling for a while, but in his mind, he still had his feet and he began to talk about his next big dream, to hike the entire Appalachian Trail. By the time this goal formed in Joel's mind, it seemed like he had finally overcome all of his challenges and awkward stages. But his family remembers that no matter how much older Joel got, he always maintained a sense of naivety. 
He saw every setback as a lesson and he never seemed to let the world's cynicism touch his heart. He saw the good in everyone, no matter what they had done or where they came from. It was that outlook that drew others towards Joel in search of the warmth and hope that he radiated. It was that infectious positivity that drew Margaret in. When the pair met, Joel was 26 years old and had grown into a tall and fit man with a mustache and a goatee to match his long hair. While Margaret served him his Italian meal, Joel told her about his dream to hike the full length of the Appalachian Trail. Margaret was vaguely familiar with the walk, but she thought Joel was out of his mind when he told her it was almost 2,200 miles long or more than 3,500 kilometers. If the weather held out and there were no injuries or delays, the whole hike would take at least six months and would include elevations between 124 feet or 38 meters to 6,625 feet or two kilometers above sea level. During that first interaction, Joel told Margaret she should join him for the walk. She instantly thought it was an absurd idea. First of all, Margaret and Joel didn't know each other. Secondly, Margaret was enrolled in college. Did Joel really think she was going to defer her classes to go on a long walk? And thirdly, Margaret had never been interested in the outdoors any more than appreciating a beautiful sunset. It was out of this world crazy to think that she would drop everything to walk 2,200 miles with a stranger without any training. Margaret politely declined Joel's offer, and when he finished his meal, they parted ways. That would have been the end of it, except Margaret kept dreaming about his offer and Joel kept coming back to the restaurant. It turned out that Joel had asked everyone he knew and everyone he met to join him on the AT. But even though some people seemed enthusiastic about it initially, they all dropped out whenever Joel started to make solid plans. It was different with Margaret, though. In her, Joel found a captivated audience. Night after night, he would talk to Margaret about his dreams to do something different with his life. He would tell Margaret that life was too short to follow a path other people have set for you or to be uninspired by what you're doing with your time. He was relentlessly positive about the impact the walk would have on both of their lives and he encouraged Margaret to focus on that rather than the negatives of delaying her college degree. The more time Joel spent talking to Margaret, the more she contemplated his idea. Could she really pause her life to walk 2,000 miles with a guy almost 10 years older than her that she had just met? Finally, after a couple of weeks, Margaret decided that yes, she could do exactly that. She wasn't attracted to Joel in a romantic way, but his talk of big dreams and following your heart appealed to her in a way staying on the traditional path of finishing college and working for the rest of her life just didn't. But she also knew that if this was going to work, there was one hurdle she needed to overcome first. Margaret knew her parents would never agree to let her defer college or go on a hike alone with a man. Telling her parents that she was going to quit college to walk in the wilderness for six months with a stranger wasn't going to fly, so instead she devised a plan. Margaret told her parents that Joel was leading a group of 15 college students along the trail and that the activity would count as credit towards her studies. A month after Joel and Margaret first met, she took him home to meet her parents to convince them to let her go. Margaret's father was an avid hunter and a keen outdoorsman. He listened intently as Joel outlined a plan for the hike and how he was going to ensure the safety of the 15 college students who would be joining them. In the end, his explanations seemed to satisfy her parents and they gave their blessing for Margaret to take part. 
They even went so far as to purchase all of Margaret's gear, including an expensive pack and hiking boots. With her parents on board, Joel and Margaret began to make the final preparations for their hike. Joel didn't have the money to buy the equipment he needed, but he did have a fiddle which he had carried with him for years, so he made a deal with the owner of a local supply store. In exchange for the fiddle, he got a tent, a sleeping bag, a pack, and some smaller supplies for cooking. The next thing they needed to plan was their timeline. Joel wanted to attend a fiddle convention in North Carolina, even though he didn't have a fiddle anymore, and Margaret still had one exam to complete for the semester. In the end, they decided that Joel would attend the convention and then hike 76 miles solo on the section of the AT that passes through Georgia. When he found a good spot for Margaret to access the trail, he would call her and she would catch a bus to that location and they would continue on the rest of the trail together. But the plan didn't work out so well because as soon as Joel started the solo part of the walk, he developed hemorrhoids again and had to stop. Margaret wasn't finished with her exam yet, so he stayed with her in Columbia until she was ready to go. Finally, on March 6, 1974, less than two months after Margaret met Joel for the first time, they caught a bus from Columbia to Atlanta, Georgia. The next day, they caught another bus into the mountains to begin their hike from the trailhead at Springer Mountain. From the starting point at the road crossing at Tesnady Gap, the trail embarks on its climb towards the mountain's peak. Almost immediately, it begins to swiftly rise in altitude and hikers are able to catch glimpses of the vista they were heading towards through the dense trees and leaves. At that time of year, the southern Appalachian forests are flooded with light and new life. Maples, oaks, and tulip trees are just beginning to bud and flowers are blooming like a rainbow carpet across the forest. Through the canopy, hikers see rocky mountain peaks silhouetted against the sky in every direction. But this beauty conceals how unforgiving the trail really is. As it progresses higher, the terrain of the forest transforms and the pathways become studded with sharp rock formations and natural obstacles. Joel and Margaret quickly realized they had chosen the steepest end of the trail to start. While Joel was somewhat experienced in the outdoors, he had very little knowledge of long-distance hiking. Margaret had absolutely zero. She had never been a runner or a hiker or into sports or athletics at all. She was much more comfortable in a library or a classroom. On top of that, the decision to even do the hike had been made less than two months earlier, so there had been no time for training or practice runs. This lack of experience meant Margaret and Joel were drastically unprepared for the changes they were about to face on the trail, and yet the trail would become the least of their worries. In preparation for the hike, Joel and Margaret both purchased external frame backpacks, which were typical of the time. These types of packs were usually made with a thick type of canvas and metal bars which made them heavy and awkward to carry. On top of that, Joel and Margaret had filled them with the supplies they thought they would need for the hike. A more experienced hiker would have quickly realized that they were carrying too much of everything and their packs were seriously overloaded. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Just one mile into the unforgiving ascent of Springer Mountain, they stopped for lunch. Margaret took off one of her boots and found the hot spot of a fresh blister forming on her heel. They applied moleskin and set off again. Over the next few hours, the stops became more frequent and moleskin covered both of Margaret's feet. By the late afternoon of that first day, they had covered just six miles. Finally, they came to the top of a long descent and they agreed that once they were at the bottom, they would set up camp for the night. Thankfully, at the base of the hill, a sign pointed towards a fixed shelter which they could use to sleep in. The low-gap shelter was just like most of the shelters we've talked about on the AT. It was a simple three-sided wooden lean-to set up on concrete pilings with a solid wooden floor to sleep on. The shelter was built in the middle of a less dense area of the forest, and a primitive toilet was concealed amongst the trees. Running just a few feet from the shelter was a trickling stream which hikers could use to refill their water bottles and wash their dishes. But for Margaret, the creek offered something else, an opportunity to soak her swollen and blistered feet. Joel and Margaret made their way towards the shelter, and as they rounded the corner, they realized that they weren't alone. On the floor of the hut, they spotted a blanket. Underneath the blanket was a man. As they approached the shelter, the man sat up, and when Margaret asked his name, he told them to call him Ralph. Joel and Margaret had stopped to chat with a number of hikers and forestry workers that day, but there was something odd about Ralph. They noticed that he didn't have any hiking gear with him. There was no pack or bedroll or cooking equipment. In a little pile next to his blanket was a leather jacket and a duffel bag, and instead of hiking boots, Ralph had a pair of worn-out dress shoes. There was nothing physically intimidating about Ralph. He was blonde and balding, and his hair and clothing looked like it hadn't been washed in weeks. He was slim and at least five inches shorter than Joel, and he was wearing horn-rimmed glasses. All of this made him look completely out of place in a shelter on a hiking trail. Despite his odd appearance, though, Ralph seemed harmless enough. But don't they all? Joel had a bad feeling about the stranger in the shelter. When Margaret went down to the stream to soak her feet, he came up beside her and told her that he didn't trust Ralph. He was worried the guy was going to steal all their stuff from the shelter when they weren't looking, like right now while they were at the stream. Margaret thought that was an odd thing to say, especially coming from Joel, who was all peace and love and acceptance. So she took him seriously and they rushed back up to the shelter. When they arrived, all of their stuff was exactly where they had left it. Ralph hadn't even moved from his blanket. After that, Margaret told Joel that she thought Ralph was harmless and that he was probably just a bit down and out. She figured he probably slept in the hut because he had nowhere else to go and maybe they should be a bit more compassionate towards him. That night, when Margaret and Joel lit the fire to make their meal, they offered Ralph some of their food. Ralph politely declined, but he did get up and help to stock up the wood pile for the fire a couple of times which seemed to put Joel's worries at ease. When Ralph was in the woods gathering wood for a third time, Joel told Margaret that Ralph was probably okay, but that they should make an early start the next day, just in case. As they crawled into their sleeping bags for a much-needed rest, he told Margaret he would wake her up and they would get going on the trail first thing. They could easily stop for breakfast when they were a mile or two away from the camp. Joel was true to his word, and the next morning before the sun had peeked through the trees, he shook Margaret awake. He had already packed their bags and was ready to go. All she needed to do was put her gear on and stuff her sleeping bag inside her pack. 
While she reached for her gear, she watched as Joel walked over to the stream and splashed some water on his face. When he was done, he walked back towards the shelter alongside the fire ring they had all gathered around the night before. At the same time, she felt Ralph stir on the floor of the shelter beside her. As she leaned over to lace her boots, she heard a loud booming sound which seemed to echo endlessly at her from the surrounding mountains. When she raised her head, she noticed that Joel was in an awkward kneeling position with his head leaning against the fire ring, and he wasn't moving. She had no time to process what she was seeing before Ralph leaned over and pointed a revolver at her face. All he said was, quote, be quiet. Margaret was too stunned to comprehend what was going on as Ralph tied her hands behind her back with twine. Finally, she was able to put her thoughts together and she asked, quote, Is Joel dead? Ralph answered, quote, No, he's just hurt. Then she asked, quote, Could you pull him away from the fire ring so he doesn't get burned? Ralph agreed that he would help Joel, but first he made Margaret sit on the ground at the base of a slim tree. He faced her towards the trunk and put her legs around the base, like an awkward leg hug. Then he blindfolded her and tied her feet together on the other side of the tree. By then, the initial shock that had caused Margaret's mind fog was beginning to clear and she knew that something was very, very wrong with the situation. She asked Ralph, quote, What are you going to do with me? All Ralph said was, quote, I don't know, and then he walked away. After that, all Margaret could hear were the sounds of the forest coming to life with the dawn of a new day. There were birds chirping in the trees and leaves rustling in the wind, and they were all thrumming to the time of her racing heartbeat. But what she couldn't hear were any sounds coming from either Joel or Ralph. Physically, Margaret was completely immobilized, with her hands tied in front of her and her legs tied around the tree and she was unable to see. Mentally, she was hysterical and her mind was struggling to come to terms with the reality of her situation. She was stuck in the woods with a monster. Joel might be dead and there was nothing she could do about either of those horrors. Finally, after what felt like an eternity, but which might have only been minutes, she heard footsteps coming towards her. She hoped it was Joel coming to rescue her, but it was Ralph. He untied her feet and removed her blindfold before walking her back towards the shelter. When she turned and looked towards the fire pit, there was no sign of Joel. She asked Ralph where Joel was, and he told her, quote, I got rid of him. Over the next few moments, Ralph forced Margaret to eat and drink from their supplies while he rifled through Joel's pack. Eventually, he found the traveler's checks that the pair had been carrying, and Margaret handed over the loose chain she had in her pocket. Then he bundled all of their things together and told Margaret to get up. They were going for a walk. Margaret realized then that Joel was dead and she had no doubt that Ralph was going to kill her next. With nothing to lose, she confronted Ralph, saying, quote, You really don't have any reason to kill me. I didn't do anything to you. Ralph coldly replied, quote, Well, neither did Joel. Ralph started leading Margaret into the woods, away from the shelter and away from the trail. When they were about 200 yards from the clearing, he told her to sit down in front of another thin tree. Once again, he bound her feet around the base of the trunk and tied her hands behind her back. Then he covered her backpack with leaves and left the other pack leaning against her back. On a log next to the tree, he sat Joel's watch so that Margaret could clearly see its face. Then he filled a helmet that Joel had been wearing with some water from the stream and propped it up next to her along with a bag of granola he dropped on her lap. 
He made Margaret prove that she could reach the water in the granola with just her mouth, and then he turned and walked away. He only stopped to tell her that he would leave a note at the shelter saying where she was and that somebody might come to find her in an hour or who knows, maybe tomorrow or the next day. Maybe never. Then he disappeared into the forest. Margaret sat and watched as the minutes ticked by with almost comedic sluggishness. The minutes seemed to stretch out unnaturally as she once again tuned into the sounds of the forest around her. She strained her ears, hoping to hear Ralph moving further away. She knew that if he returned, she was almost certainly going to die. After 15 minutes, she heard footsteps crunching through the forest. When she looked around, she saw what she dreaded most. Ralph was standing right behind her, but instead of shooting her or attacking her, he said, quote, I can't leave you here. What if it's days before anyone shows up? You'd die and I don't want that. I didn't want to kill Joel. I just wanted his gear. I had to do it because he was such a big guy, but I've never whacked a chick before. Then he offered Margaret a choice. She could either stay where she was or Ralph would untie her and they would hike out of the mountains together. He promised that when they reached the main highway, he would let her go unharmed. What would you choose? Stay in the woods and hope to be found or hike out with your friend's killer? I should mention that in the year prior to Joel's murder, just 93 people hiked the full length of the AT. It was by no means as popular as it is today when more than 3,000 people attempt the full hike every year. The chances of someone coming by and rescuing Margaret before she ran out of food or water or succumbed to the elements were slim. Ultimately, Margaret chose to go with Ralph rather than wait for a rescue which might never come. He packed up the bags and ordered Margaret to walk in front of him while he trailed behind with his pistol in hand. Before they left, Ralph warned her, quote, I'm going to let you go, but if we run into anyone before we reach civilization, and you say anything or do anything to signal that there's something wrong, you'll all die, and I'll kill you first. Despite his promise to let Margaret go, she had no doubt that at any moment he could change his mind and push her over a cliff or shoot her in the back. They took a different trail out of the woods than what Margaret and Joel had come in on, so the path was unfamiliar. She was constantly on the verge of panic as they walked and she decided that the best way to approach the situation was to keep talking. So she told Ralph all about her life and her studies and she made sure not to mention Joel so that she didn't trigger a reaction from the man pointing a gun at her. Despite the burning pain in her feet from her blisters, she was determined to not complain or stop walking so that she didn't give him any reason to become frustrated. After Margaret had been talking for a while, Ralph began to tell her about his life too. Ralph told Margaret that he was born up north and had grown up out west in the mountains. He told her he could survive with just a pocket knife. Sometime in the years prior, he had gotten in trouble with the law and he had been in and out of jail for years. Most recently, he had escaped from custody and he was now on the run from the authorities, including the FBI. After his escape, he had taken cover in the Appalachian Mountains, but he felt out of his element in these mountains and he wanted to get back west. He told Margaret that the only way he could get there was with the right equipment, equipment which he had seen Joel carrying. Right from the moment they left the shelter, Margaret noticed that Ralph was struggling with the difficulty of the hike. Even though she was walking in front, she could hear Ralph's whines and he needed to stop frequently. He had taken Joel's pack, which was much too large for him and didn't sit on his back or hips like it was supposed to. It was during one of their breaks that Margaret noticed two forestry workers on the trail up ahead. 
They were both carrying chainsaws, and Margaret recognized them as two of the people she had spoken to the day before. Except when she had last seen them, she was walking with Joel. She was convinced that if they noticed her, they would realize that she was with a different person and know that something was wrong. There was no telling what Ralph would do if they said something, so she told Ralph that they needed to walk deeper into the woods until the men had passed by. But just as they turned around, one of the men spotted them and called out, quote, Hey, we saw y'all yesterday. Margaret held her breath while she waited for whatever came next, but the man just shrugged and said he had to be on his way because their ride was waiting for them a few miles south. Then Ralph asked the worker about how far the next road crossing to the north was. The forestry worker replied that it was a long way away and a very steep hike. Margaret was beginning to realize that she might be spending a night alone in the forest with her friend's killer. She was determined to avoid having to spend any longer with Ralph than she had to, so despite the pain in her feet and the panic coursing through her body, she decided to pick up her pace. By the early afternoon, they had found their way to Rocky Knob Shelter, where they rested for a short time and refilled their canteens. When Ralph looked at the trail map from Joel's pack, he realized that they were only three miles away from the road crossing and he thought they could reach it before nightfall. Then he made an announcement. He told Margaret that he had changed his mind. He wasn't going to let her go and they reached the road like he had promised. He told her that he didn't know what his next move was going to be, but she was his insurance policy until he figured that out. Ralph told her that they would hitchhike into the nearest town and get a motel for the night and he would probably let her go in the morning. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The change in plans was both good and bad for Margaret. Good that he hadn't decided to kill her, yet bad in the sense that she wasn't going to be free like she had hoped. And it's hard to decide which is worse, being alone in the wilderness with her friend's killer or locked up in a hotel room with her friend's killer. But it wasn't like Margaret had a choice, so she kept her head down and did as she was told while they hiked the three miles out towards Georgia Route 75. Just before they reached the blacktop, Ralph repeated his earlier warning. Say anything to anyone and everyone dies. It didn't take long for a driver to offer Ralph and Margaret a ride to the closest town of Helen. Helen was once the center of a large logging region, but after facing a steep decline in demand, the town had reimagined itself as a storybook Bavarian village. Every building in the township was revamped with traditional southern German facades complete with quaint inns and bustling eateries. The pavements had been pulled up and replaced with cobbled streets and ornate lampposts to complete the charming look. After cashing one of Joel's traveler's checks, Ralph and Margaret made their way to a motel where they paid for a room for the night. Ralph signed the register as Mr. and Mrs. Joel Paulson. Once they were inside the room, Margaret was certain she was going to die, but instead Ralph lay on the bed and watched the news to see if anyone had found Joel's body yet. Then he ordered food from the restaurant next door and took Margaret to pick it up and bring it back to the room. After that, he turned on an Elvis Presley movie and practiced using Joel's signature so he could cash the rest of the traveler's checks. 
After a while, Margaret asked if she could take a shower. She wanted to have a few moments of reprieve from the tension of being Ralph's hostage. He agreed, and she went into the bathroom and got undressed. But moments later, Ralph walked into the room and he stayed there until she got out. He didn't try to touch her or look at her, but it was clear that he was worried that Margaret might attempt to escape through the bathroom window. When she started to get dressed after her shower, he said to her, quote, I could tell you were scared when we were hiking. You kept turning around like you thought I was about to shoot you. I almost gave you the gun just to calm you down. It's too bad we didn't meet under different circumstances. If all this hadn't happened, I could have really liked you. Jeez, what a compliment. After the shower, Margaret got into the one bed in the room and finally her exhaustion overcame her and she drifted off to sleep. Ralph stayed awake in the chair next to the bed for the rest of the night. The revolver never left his hands. The next morning, Ralph told Margaret that he needed to cash more of Joel's checks and they walked to a local gas station together. With each step, Margaret became more and more convinced that he was going to go back on his promise again. Sure enough, once Ralph had the cash in his hand, he stated that he couldn't let Margaret hitchhike back to her home in South Carolina. He told Margaret that it wasn't safe to hitchhike and there was no telling what sort of person might pick her up, clearly not seeing the irony in his statement. I imagine by that point, Margaret was more than willing to take her chances with hitchhiking. Ralph then told Margaret that he would take her to a bus station, get her a ticket to South Carolina, and make sure she got on the right bus. She would be free to go once she was safe. Finally, there was some hope that Margaret would live. She just had to make it through the next hour or so. Surely there would be a bus she could get on to finally escape this terrible man. They hitchhiked to the nearest bus station in Cleveland, but when they asked for a ticket to Columbia, they were told they had to go to Atlanta first. To do that, they needed to go to another town which had a Greyhound station. So they hitchhiked to Cornelia, but when they got to the Greyhound office, there was note taped to the door which said, quote, gone to the doctor, be back afternoon. Ralph decided they would wait at a nearby cafe and he cashed more traveler's checks at the local bank. A few hours later, they returned to the counter and Margaret bought a ticket to Columbia while Ralph bought a ticket to Atlanta. And while they waited, he took the opportunity to give Margaret one final warning. He said, quote, I promise you that if you call the police as soon as I leave and they're waiting when I get to Atlanta, innocent people are going to die. I'll start shooting and I won't care who gets hurt. Then he suggested, quote, You should write a book about this. You could make some money. Oh yeah, that's definitely worth having your friend murdered. What a sweet windfall. Moments later, Ralph's bus arrived. He loaded Joel's pack into the cargo hold and climbed into the seat while Margaret watched as it drove away. Finally, she was free, but Ralph's warning echoed in her head. All she wanted was to be back with her family, and then she would call the police. Later that night, Margaret's bus pulled into the station in Columbia. She was exhausted and alone, and she picked up the phone to ask her brother to pick her up. But there was no answer, and there was no answer at her parents' place either. There was only one number left to call. She called the police and told them that someone had been murdered in Georgia. She would tell them all about it if they picked her up from the station. At 11.15 that night, the sheriff's office in White County, Georgia, were notified that a teenager in Columbia had told officers a strange story. According to the 17-year-old girl, there had been a homicide at the Low Gap shelter. Early the next morning, the body of Joel Polson was found by the stream that ran next to the shelter. 
His remains were covered with leaves and sticks, and his clothes were ripped, which indicated that he had been dragged into the position. A plastic bag was covering his head, and it had been tied in place with a piece of string. It appeared as though the bag had been used to stop blood from spreading from his head onto the surrounding area. Joel's autopsy revealed he had died from a single 38 caliber gunshot wound to the head. The bullet had entered his skull behind his left ear, ripped through his brain, and had come to a stop behind his right ear. It was removed from his head and used as ballistic evidence. Joel's murder was the first known homicide on the Appalachian Trail. Since then, there have been at least 13 other murders, although the mountains may well be hiding many more secrets. Joel's body was found exactly where Margaret had said it would be, which made it clear that her strange story was true. Two days later, she sat down for an interview where she recapped the whole tale of how she had come to meet Joel in the first place and how they had ended up on the AT together. She told the officers, quote, It was just strange that he knew the whole time that it would be because of me that he would get caught and all, but was still letting me go. I don't know what his motive was or anything, but he was unbelievably kind to me. He really was. Margaret was able to give the police a detailed description of Ralph, which they used to produce a composite. The picture was released to the public, and a week after Joel's murder, they got a hit. A woman called the Atlanta police to inform them she had seen a man matching the description of the Appalachian Trail murderer. A search warrant was obtained to search the apartment of the man the woman had seen. Inside, they found Joel's backpack, his clothes and camping gear, and a revolver containing four live rounds and one empty cartridge. But there was no sign of the person who lived there. The officers decided to stake out the home and wait for their target to return. Just a few hours later, they found their man. The man was arrested without incident, and officials quickly identified him as 31-year-old Ralph Howard Fox. Ralph was the youngest of three children, who were all born and raised in Detroit. He grew up in a middle-class family where there was plenty of love and stability, but even as a child, Ralph had demonstrated troubling behaviors and he would often get into trouble with his teachers. Before long, he had begun his career as a criminal. When he was just 15 years old, he kidnapped a girl from a party, and at 17, he was arrested for car theft. A year later, he was caught breaking and entering. At age 20, he was charged with statutory rape after running away with a 15-year-old girl and taking her across the border into Mexico. A few months after his arrest, Ralph married the girl whose name was Anne, and within a year she was pregnant with his son. In March of 1964, a couple of months before the baby was due, Ralph was arrested again after kidnapping a young teenager from her high school and taking her into the woods. Luckily, a cop had come across the pair while Ralph was tying the girl's hands behind her back. Ralph was given a sentence of 15 years for the kidnapping and attempted rape of the teenager, but he only served a few months because he managed to escape from the Michigan State Prison in Jackson. It took until 1969 for him to be recaptured in Miami and he was returned to prison. In the meantime, Anne had divorced him and moved on with her life. A few years later, Ralph was given parole, and within days of his release, he broke into Anne's home and opened fire on her with a gun. Thankfully, he missed every shot, but his next victim wouldn't be so lucky. After the failed attempt on Anne's life, Ralph fled to New Orleans, then to Fort Lauderdale, and then to Atlanta. That's where he found his way onto the Appalachian Trail, just five days before Joel and Margaret began their hike. After Ralph's arrest, he was taken to the station for questioning. 
He admitted that he owned the gun that was later matched to the bullet found in Joel's head, and he confessed to stealing Joel's hiking equipment. He even admitted that he had taken Margaret hostage for the hike out of the forest, but he never admitted to murdering Joel, and he refused to give any explanation about what had happened at the Low Gap shelter. Ralph had told Margaret he needed Joel's hiking equipment to get away from the authorities, but when he was asked if that was why he had shot Joel, he denied it. Despite the lack of any explicit confession to murder, the ballistic evidence tied him directly to the scene. Margaret was also able to pick Ralph from a lineup, and he was charged with first-degree murder. A year after Joel's murder, Ralph pleaded guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. Ralph was an inmate for just 17 years. In 1991, his older brother died and Ralph was given a period of leave to attend the funeral. He didn't return to jail because somehow the authorities thought it was a good idea to convert his leave into parole. He was transported to Lapeer County, Michigan, where he moved in with his sister, Corinne. Initially, Corinne thought Ralph was a changed man. He was quiet and agreeable, and he didn't seem to bother anyone. He adhered to the strict conditions of his parole and never missed a meeting with his supervisor. But everyone was about to realize that Ralph's changes were only skin deep. After seven months of freedom, Ralph missed a meeting with his parole officer. He didn't turn up to work, and there was no sign of him at his sister's home. Then, a week later, officers found the body of a 29-year-old woman in a muddy field in Lapeer. The woman's name was Diane Good, and she had been strangled to death. The ground around the body showed evidence of a vehicle having been stuck there, so investigators spoke to local tow truck drivers. One of those drivers remembered pulling a blue-gray Mercury Cougar from the field around the time Diane would have been murdered. The driver of the vehicle had given the name Ralph Fox. It took two days for officers to track Ralph down in Skagit County, Washington. It turns out he had gotten wind that the police were onto him, and he was found trying to steal another vehicle so they couldn't track him to the Mercury. He was arrested and charged with the murder of Diane Good. Ralph denied any involvement, but in January of 1993, he was sentenced to life in prison once again. The judge commented, quote, Mr. Fox, you were convicted of murder before in another state. You are now convicted of two murders in your lifetime. I am satisfied that you pose a substantial risk to a free society, and that you should never be let out of prison. Ever. For any reason. While in prison in the early 2000s, Ralph was diagnosed with lung cancer. In July of 2003, he died in prison. In the wake of Joel's death, Margaret would say, quote, I'll explain to people that it almost feels like it happened to someone else, but that's not exactly accurate. It's very much a part of me, but the whole thing is so surreal that it almost feels like it's a movie. Maybe this experience helped me see that life is a fleeting moment, so grab it and go. After returning from the hike, she returned to college and completed her doctorate. Her love of the outdoors blossomed from that first terrible experience, and she spent many years working in the tropical forests and jungles of Brazil, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Bolivia. Later, she married and had her own family, but the mark of the monster she met on the AT never left her. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online.
This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.